0: And as you settle in, would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, um, you know, we punctuate our service with prayer, not, not you know, ritualistically, but really out of, out of a prof- profound sense of need, that we just, we don't want to move along too much before we're, again, crying out and uh, asking for you to make your sufficiency known where we are, frankly, deficient. Where we just can't do it, and uh, you know that is certainly true of preaching. Um, you know we are not uh, simply uh, engaged in an educational exercise here, and this is not just the work of wordsmithing. But we are invoking you, uh, Holy Spirit, to come and to apply the gospel uh, to the hearts of your people, uh, Lord. That we would. Um, be again, you know, that, that we would, just as we received him, walk in him. Jesus, we received you in repentance and faith, and we want to walk in you in repentance and faith. Uh, we want to turn from self and again receive our Savior. And how appropriate in this season of Advent, where we uh, focus on your coming to ask you to come again, to come right now, even as we await your second coming. Uh, to uh, give our hearts uh, everything they need for life and godliness. Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I looked at this passage this week and, and you know, uh, thought about it, you know, I was thinking about, I'm getting older. I'm turning 50 here in December. And, uh, you know, the older I get, um, I'm continually struck at how few things I'm actually competent in um, there's a couple of areas I've got. I've got a little ability. There's there's still some things I hope to grow in. Some skills I, you know, I hope to develop. But there's just a whole lot of things I've learned to stay away from, um, because disaster is guaranteed. Um, you know, a couple of those things, and you know, very partial list here, are gardening and home improvement. Um, my skill around the house, as my wife will tell you, is kind of replace the light bulb level. You know, um, when it comes to gardening, I'm, I'm a lot more likely to kill than to give life. Um, but here's the thing I've noticed about those, those two kind of activities, home improvement and gardening, is critical to both is a process of tearing down before building up. Um, critical to, to gardening is, is a process of cutting down before there's fruitfulness, right? Um, if you've ever seen someone prune a tree, you, know, you would think your first thought would be they're trying to kill that plant, right? Or if you've ever walked in on the early stages of a home build or a or a bathroom renovation, hey, your first thought is, well, you know, I, I must have missed the bomb going off uh, before I got here. It's, you know, to me, it's a little bit like watching someone exercise. Even when it's going well, it doesn't look very good, right? And that principle, I think, is very much true of what of how God operates, of how God builds, of how God grows. Uh, there, there's rarely building without first some bulldozing, and there's rarely growth without first some, some pruning, right? And, and that is very much the template for the Beatitudes. Um, you know, we, we've said much about that. We're in the third week of our Beatitudes series. Um, and we've said each week that the Beatitudes kind of operate on multiple levels. On the one hand, they declare who you are. They declare your being. You know, what one has become by faith. Um, and at the same time, there's a progression here, isn't there? There's, a, there's the delineation of a progression of what one is becoming by faith, right? As you come into the kingdom. And that process really begins with demo, with pruning, We saw that the last couple of weeks. We started into the kingdom with spiritual poverty. Um, We continued with spiritual mourning, with repentance. And and, and that's what's being uh, built and grown. Um, What what is being built and grown is not just, you know, my personal spirituality. It it includes that. But it's also, Jesus' great grand project here is the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That includes individual experience, but it encompasses an entire kingdom reality, a corporate reality. So, you know, there's a description of what God is up to in this way in the opening chapters of Jeremiah. It, it's, when, it's when God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. Uh, the scholars think Jeremiah was just a young teenager at the time, maybe 14 years old, and, and he gets a call to ministry from the Lord. And, and in that call, God explains to Jeremiah that his ministry will be a kingdom-building ministry. Uh, And here's the critical thing. Here's how he describes it. He says it will be one in which the Lord will pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow, and then build and plant. Now, for many years, some of you know um, that I served as a church planter. That was quite literally my job description, to plant a church And I've got to admit, I kind of went into it naively, you know, because that was my job title. I just thought, well, I'll be gently planting. I will be building. I will be growing. But then you discover when you get into it that central to what God does, and not only central but necessary to it, is all this stuff, plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing. He does that kind of in all kinds of ways, but I want to say he does it beginning with the hearts of his people. He does it in the hearts of his pastors. He brings us to poverty of spirit, to mourning of our sin. He, he does the good work, often difficult, often painful, of bulldozing you know, our petty, little, pitiful kingdoms in order that his will be built, right? Now, you never see plucking up and breaking down and destroying and overthrowing you know, articulated in church vision statements. At least I've never seen that. Um, or in a fundraising campaign, or in a mission strategy, or, you know, when you recruit a pastor. And yet, you know, here it is. It's necessary to our life and thriving in faith. It's necessary to the advancement of the kingdom. You know, that, 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 that there's a demo phase of God's building project. There's pruning that there might be uh, fruitfulness. There just always is. So, you know, even as God declares what his people are by faith, it's also true that something's being built uh, in his Beatitudes, that there's blessing that comes by what's being constructed when our little kingdom is torn down and when our little agenda is cut back in order to see the kingdom thrive, to see it be built, to see it bear fruit. Okay. In the first chapter of Colossians, Paul describes it this way He says, He says to He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to every Christian. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Paul uses that little phrase, domain of darkness, that's just shorthand for saying, your kingdom, my kingdom. You know, that's where we were before we were transferred into His kingdom. So, the gospel is the good news that He has delivered me... I don't deliver myself. God has rescued me by grace from what? My dark little kingdom, my little domain of darkness, into what? The kingdom of his beloved son. So, you know, when you stand within the architecture of that, the architecture of grace that's delineated in these beatitudes, you know, your your first step in, the foundation upon which you stand is poverty of spirit. You, You discover when you stand there, that what you were standing on before was inherently unstable. You know, that, that it was, you, you, you discover that what you were hanging on to, what you imagined were riches, were in fact poverty, right? Uh, it, it shows you that God's grace is both an immediate, uh, it, it is immediately delivering you and it is delivering you in an ongoing kind of way. You're always standing on that. And the immediate implication of that realization, that I, that I begin with poverty of spirit, is that you know, I don't merely have some behavior that needs correcting, although I do, or bad habits that need reforming, or some minor peccadillos and occasional lapse in judgment that, that require a little tweaking, right? I realize that I am afflicted with a condition called sin, which requires forgiveness which requires healing, which demands that I, which requires a rescue, right? Uh, we're, we're able to apprehend when we, when we just get those two steps in, poverty of spirit, mourning of sin, the futility of trying to manage sin, the folly of trying to be a self-savior. And we mourn it and we repent, we repent of it and we cry out, help, I need a rescue here. We've accepted, in other words, this is critical to the gospel, Gospel's good news, but what comes before it is bad news. We've accepted the bad news about ourselves so that we're able to receive the good news about Jesus, right? That's the way in. That's the way into the kingdom. A way that begins with plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing the gracious work that God does of renovation, the gracious, gracious work of pruning, that there would be a new and beautiful thing built that couldn't be built otherwise, that there'd be fruitfulness where before everything's gone to seed. So, you know, now we're, here we are at the third beatitude, and it's good to be reminded again that these aren't performance directives. They are fundamentally declarations of grace. It's, it's not Jesus saying, uh, if you become meek, I'll bless you, and then you'll inherit the earth, right? He says instead, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's, a, it's in the indicative. And, w- and with all, as with all the beatitudes, this is a blessing that comes by grace, a free gift, You know, and with this beatitude, I want to say we're kind of turning something of a corner. Um, It's like we're starting to see this renovation project take a little bit of shape. We're starting to see, you know, some buds on the tree, that fruit's coming. Uh, You know, but I want to ask you, you, if you had no familiarity with this, if we were just playing Mad Libs, and you've been tracking with the progression of the beatitudes, and you had to fill in what comes next, you know, after blessed are the poor in spirit, after blessed are those who mourn, you know, what, what would you put there? You've been humbled thoroughly with poverty of spirit and mourning. What comes next? Well, I've seen all the Rocky movies, all 18 of them. And, you know, here's the plot line, right? You hit the mat, but then he, then he comes roaring back, right? Uh, there's a little, you know, you, you expect a little heroicism at this point. But then, you know, what do you make of this? Blessed are the meek very surprising. You know, I'd say, in fact, there's a decent case to be made that this might be the most misunderstood of all the Beatitudes. Um, you know, in part because meek doesn't fare well in English uh, or in our culture. In fact, this is an aspect of Christianity that's, that's often mocked, usually by powerful people. Um, J. Paul Getty once joked that while the meek may inherit the earth, they don't get the mineral rights meekness is weakness, right? Nice rhyme. You know, at best, it's mushy middle. It's not really strong or weak. It's kind of in between. It's a little mushy. It's kind of blah. But, you know, the Bible means something, I want to say, so different about meekness. It's almost the opposite of our conventional understanding of it. Um, so we need to delve into this concept in some depth, I think, beginning with what meekness is not. Um, the first thing to know about meekness is it's not something that we can develop within us. Um, like all the other Beatitudes, it's not, this is not really something we can work on. We've got to be worked on in order for this to, to happen, to be in us. You know? so, so I'll just tell you, if you strive to become meek, you'll become something, but probably not meek. It's not something that can be curated, it's got to be conveyed to you, conveyed by grace. Grace. So, you know, it's, it's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not a natural feature of the personality. There are introverted, easygoing, generally nice people, but that's not meekness. Uh, you, you can be an extroverted meek person. You can be an introverted meek person. You can be a serious meek person. You can be a jovial meek person. Um, the point is no one comes into this life meek. Meekness is... The meek are something like diamonds, Right? Uh, they are produced by, by forces being brought upon them. In fact, meekness isn't really even a characteristic that's, that's on outward display. It's more, of an in, it's more of a quality of the inner spirit, a quality that suffuses the person, that touches every aspect of that person, whoever they are and whatever their personality may happen to be. So, you know, if we don't attain meekness by way of DNA or by way of personal dedication, how do you get it? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time just exploring the three ways I think it's operative in the life. First, it's produced as a result. Secondly, it grows from a root. And finally, it affects a reorientation. Uh, It's a result, it grows from a root, there's reorientation. First, meekness comes by way of a result. Um, we've already touched on this a little bit, but meekness only shows up once one has had an encounter with the living God, revealing in that person a poverty of spirit and prompting a grief for, grief for sin, that is to say, repentance. Apart from that experience, there will be no meekness. Meekness comes by meeting with the living God, so that we're we're, you know, the, the days of grating on the curve are over, and we actually see, you know, the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of the living God. We're contending with those things. And that experience implants in the heart what was never there before and had no hope of being there, and that is repentance for sin, for sin and turning to the Savior. And, and with newness of life, by repentance and faith, other things begin to happen. You quit trying to get your life out of your own life because you got life in Him, and with life in him, you have now a new stability, a new confidence that wasn't there before, but has been planted in you by the gospel of grace. Your life is in him. So meekness is the result of meeting with the living God, and it is, it, it is, it is a root grown by the grace of God in you that delivers the nutrients of the gospel to your entire being. So that in your person is a strength that wasn't there before. One that quiets human pride and finds greater strength in God. That's essentially what it is. So what that means is that contrary to our common kind of understanding of meekness, meekness is weakness, meekness is in fact great strength, great authority, great power. It's the power of God at work in a human being. It's utter confidence in him. It's standing on the foundation of who he is and not standing on our shaky little foundations anymore. So meekness enables people to so thoroughly ground their lives in the truth of the gospel that they're willing to die for it. So, you know, there's been a lot of martyrs for the faith over millennia, all kinds of different people. But here's what's true of all of them. They were all meek. They all put their trust in the Lord. They found their life in Him. Now, even though it's not a natural feature of the personality, it doesn't mean it won't affect your personality. And this is really critical. It will. Meekness will show up in your personality in certain ways, in such a way that, that, that there is a new approachability in you. That, that, that what grows in you is an orientation toward and sympathy with others that wasn't there before. Uh, what will grow in you is an eagerness to listen instead of speak, uh, a teachability, a, a readiness to repent, a lack of defensiveness. And, and, you know, the question is why? What's at work there? Well, what's at work there is this, you've now become a person who has no need to be placing yourself at the center because your center's been relocated. Your your life is in the Lord. A.W. Tozer, the great uh, writer and pastor, Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, says this about meekness. He says, the meek person is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless as God has declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. This is his motto. So meekness is a result. Meekness grows from the root of the gospel that's been implanted in the heart, from which comes a lot of comes much fruit. And the sweetness of that fruit is kind of a reorientation to life. Um, the meek just have a different way of experiencing the world, a different way of looking at things. This is why Christians are weirdos. They look at things differently. So when it comes to a view of their of yourself, it's like you know. All of our life, we've sort of examined ourselves through this particular microscope, only to discover that when the gospel comes in, there's other magnification settings on this microscope that I've never never looked at myself through. So, you know, you get a higher magnification setting that shows you yourself, you know, to the greatest depths, to the bottom of who you are, all the things you were blind to before. You get a truer view of yourself. And, and, And it also affects your orientation towards God, how you see Him. It's like all of your life you were looking through the wrong end of the telescope. You know, God was kind of distant, kind of small, kind of irrelevant, but the gospel comes in and flips the telescope around, and you see Him as He is, immense, powerful, mighty, great, holy. So the gospel gives the gift of a deeper, clearer, truer view of ourselves and of God. So, that affects a radical reorientation to how you see everything. You know, you're out of self-interest and toward an interest in your relationship with God and others. So, you know, this beatitude in one sense is kind of the first explicitly social beatitude. Um, Meekness isn't just this quality hidden within us, but it, it works out toward relationship with others, toward God and other people. Um... And, you know, but that's not to say it doesn't work inside you for your own benefit. Again, the grace of meekness will, will produce fruit in you. You'll be less consumed with yourself. You'll be less concerned with, other, with what other people think about you. You'll become less self-protected because you've discovered by way of poverty of spirit and mourning your sin that actually there's not a whole lot worth defending. If you're ever confronted In some sin, you know, your response will kind of, will likely be, well, you don't know the half of it. You just saw a little bit of outward behavior. You didn't see what was going on in my heart. You might even become amazed that God and others think of you as highly as they do. And that means that things like our accomplishments, our sense of accomplishment, is put in its place. You know, you start to see them as some, not as something that you made happen, but as something that God made happen for you by grace. You know, that your accomplishments are, are, um, are gifts, not trophies. Inwardly, your sense of identity is put in its proper place because your heart and conscience is at rest in the full acceptance of Jesus. You can be done with trying to carve out and sustain a sense of significance by latching onto something about you that would make you feel important or worthy. You know, by the powerful saving love of Jesus, you discover you're more than your profession. You know, you're more than your education. You're more than your ethnicity. You're more than some amount of money. You're more than your sexuality. Or any other thing you've been telling yourself or the world's been telling you, this is what makes you matter. The gospel is operative in life in such a way that you become simultaneously less sensitive about yourself and more sensitive towards others. You're more despairing of yourself and more dependent on the Lord. You grieve sin more deeply and you're more confident than ever that God... um, loves the poor in spirit. You're reoriented in your relationship with yourself, with others, and critically with the Lord. And this is really important because I'm convinced, I'm I'm utterly convinced, that one of the ongoing battles of life for all of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, any of it, that, that we regularly default to a wrong view of God. I just think that's an ongoing battle. We, we, you know, we continue to look through the wrong end of the telescope. We continue to wrestle with the idea that he's distant or disinterested or disengaged or that he's a little too near, he's too demanding, he's perpetually disappointed. I just think it's an ongoing struggle. And and no less than the founder of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, who prior to setting off the Reformation was an Augustinian monk, you know, who uh, was a Bible scholar you know, in every, in every kind of category of religiosity was at the pro level. You know, he remarked in his commentary on Galatians that he'd been preaching justification by grace through faith for 20 years and still had to battle daily with the idea that he had to perform for God through good works in order that God would have to accept him. That's why we can never get over get past, or move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because by it, we're given the grace of ongoing gospel refreshment, ongoing gospel uh, reorientation, a present apprehension of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Present, right now. And and I want to say, incidentally, this is why regular church attendance is vital for your life. It's the most important thing you will do. Skip breakfast, don't skip church. Because we are desperately needful of the gospel. We're desperately needful of gospel recalibration. We we, we get the gospel on Sunday and guess what happens on Monday? We forget all about it. We need to be shepherded back to his people, to his word, to all of his ministrations of grace. Is that maybe worth rearranging our camping trip plans a little bit? To be there on Sunday, whether it's here or somewhere else. Because we are continually needful of nourishment with the good news. Because we're always hungry for it. The heart grows cold and needs to be warmed at the fires of the gospel. This means that as a community, we can never think of the gospel as a commodity to be exported only. We're we're not just exporters, right? We're, we're, We're also importers. We need it as much as anyone. We might even begin to believe that we need it more than anyone. And let's be honest, it is actually factually impossible to, to um, tell people about the good news if you're not delighting in it yourself. It's impossible. No one would believe you uh, if you said, there's this great restaurant. I, you know, I don't eat there, but it's great. Or, or, you know, this is the best car, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't buy one, but, I, but it's a great car. Or, you know, this is the place, best place to go on vacation. I've never been there, but I've heard. You know, so why would they believe that the gospel is the best news if you're not believing it yourself? If you're not enjoying it, if you're not delighting in it, if you're not relying on it? Of course, they can't. But when we're imbibing in the good news as good news not only for other people, but for us, you know, um, beautiful things grow. Uh, meekness is grown in us, and, and produces all kinds of fruit from that. You know, um, we, we've said it before. If if you make meek some kind of aim, meekness, some kind of aim or goal, you know that would be a disaster. You'd get something, but not meekness. But you know, so we don't we don't attain meekness because we've made it our aim to do so. We attain meekness by way of adoration. You know, by never getting over the gospel, by not just being exporters but importers. We 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 attain it when we. When we look to Jesus and and all his beauty, we worship him when our lives revolve around him. This is the first Sunday of Advent, right? I mean, we're going to sing this, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Oh, come, let us adore him. Worshiping him, adoring the meek one, asking for his life to, to grow in our own lives. And look at his life. Look at his ministry. What do you see? Not not weakness, not aggression, uh, or prideful claims for himself. You see one who's always giving glory to the Father. Always delivering life to others. Look at him, even in his most trying moments, like when he was on trial. What do you see? You see an inner strength, a quiet confidence of one not asserting himself. Uh, You see the poise and the confidence of one who's staking the entirety of his hopes on the Father. One ancient philosopher used this very same word that's used here for meekness, Uh, as a way to describe what happens when a wild horse is tamed. You know, that that the wild spirit of the stallion has been broken, but all the power is is put to good use for others. It's a great description of meekness. And the supreme example of mighty power directed and put to good use for the benefit of others is Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus. In Philippians 2, it's said of him that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the wild thing. That's a great declaration of the greatness of Jesus, but it becomes central to our devotion to Jesus you know paul says in that fir- in that same text he's urging the church after declaring that about jesus he says have this mind among yourselves the mind of christ a reorientation what does that mean it means that the gospel's operative in your life that that you you have attained a radically new orientation toward the world by his work in you Paul says, I mean, it's one of the most astounding passages. He says that by that orientation, you're, you're able even to have the same love for others that Jesus had for you. Can you imagine that? I mean, think about our, deep, our age of deep division. By, by faith in Christ, Paul says, we're able to be in full accord and of one mind. And, and that we're able to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, I mean, imagine this, count others more significant than yourselves. If that's not a divine work of supernatural gospel power, I don't know what is. In Jesus Christ, we're able for the first time, Paul says, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a new orientation. It's an utter reorientation because the gospel is broken in. It's produced meekness so that all that wild stallion bucking and thrashing of self-assertion is quieted and tamed and directed so that whatever power, whatever gifts we've been endowed with in this life work for the benefit of others to the glory of God. This is conveyed to God's people by repentance. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn the reality of my sin and by faith. you know, I was trying to secure riches and joys on my own, and I find that they're only available in Jesus. You see, there is no greater power than relying on Jesus. That's a great power. And by that great power of reliance, we come into a promise. Jesus has a promise here. I haven't even gotten to it yet. And the promise is this, the meek will inherit the earth. Now, you've got to just soak that in for a second because there's audacity here. You know, the audacity of the promise. One commentator said, Jesus assures world conquest for the meek. And again, it flies in the face of everything we know about how the world works, right? I mean, the, the me, the, it's only the self-confident and the aggressive and the assert, assertive who get the good things of this life, right? They're the ones who get into the best schools, they get the best positions, they're on the fast track, they get all the money, they're the ones who are on top and stay on top. So while we might, you know, expect the, the meek to get into heaven someday, it's the dominant, self-assured, and aggressive who get the earth and the here and now, Right? But notice, Jesus has the authority to give it away because it's his. The earth is his. And he chooses to give it to the meek. What are we to make of that? Well, I think one of the most earth-shattering facts of the Bible is that the good brown earth that you and I walk on every day will be the stage of the coming kingdom. The coming of the kingdom doesn't happen over there or up there. It comes here. To, to this place, to the world. Scripture envisions a renewed earth, kind of like you know, the renewed bodies at the resurrection. There's a whole lot to say about that, plenty that's mysterious about it, but the, the effect of it is, is all the brutal effects of sin and death and the devil are overturned, reversed, and renewed. And while they're still as God's people are at the center of that that activity, we're described, if you're a Christian, you're described as as part of the building material of the kingdom. You're a living stone building the house of God, his holy temple. And, And we have a calling that comes with that, to pray and pursue and seek the kingdom. And we're given the joys of living in it, even as we're longing for it to come more fully as kingdom people that God calls to love this world, preserving the world as the salt of the earth, proclaiming the hope of the gospel as lights in the world, as Jesus says in the same sermon. So to inherit the earth means that God's people come into a satisfaction, a contentment, and a rest that they could have in no other way except through Jesus in a very restless world. Because they can say, as Paul did, that because of Jesus, I have nothing yet I have everything, everything. Not as some super spiritual state that belonged to this one apostle, but, you know, Paul's always encouraging the church in this very thing. He writes to churches that are afflicted with all kinds of stuff, and he, and he reminds them that all things are yours in Christ. So one writer puts it this way, Jesus is giving everything away. I mean, it has that for a picture of meekness? Jesus is giving everything away. We're only three Beatitudes in, and he has already given away God's kingdom God's comfort and now God's good green earth, and He has the freedom and right and authority to give it away because He's given Himself away wholly for us. We just got over thanks. We just got through Thanksgiving. We're we're on the leading edge of the holidays. Have mercy. You know, are you tired? (laughs) Are you weary? Are you weighed down? with a load or loads that, that feel like too much to bear, look to Jesus. Adore Jesus. Because in him is infinite strength and infinite humility. And with him is an invitation for us to find our life in him. Despising neither the fa- he, he despises neither the failed nor the full of themselves. But he appeals with this invitation to come to him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Find your life in him. Rely on his power. Be at rest in his meekness, his mighty and quiet strength. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, indeed, uh, you are the vine and we are the branches. And you um, are faithful to uh, make us despair of a life that we would make for ourselves, often imagining that that is the good life, so that we would be delivered from our domain of darkness into your kingdom of light. We thank you for that. That is such grace. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in our apprehension of your grace, that we would see your beauty, that we would see the magnitude of the gospel, that we would not merely be exporters of it, but importing it, into our lives. Holy Spirit, help us with that. With every bit of despair, with every flash of anger, with every longing, with every Lord, every component that is the roller coaster of our emotions as we go out into the world from here, would those be promptings to despair of ourselves and delight in you? to be reminded of your sufficiency, of your greatness, of your grace. Lord, and we are always on the benefit side of that. We always gain. There's always more in you. And so, Lord, we want to be mindful of that as we come to this table. It's an astounding thing. It's an audacious thing that we are not coming up here with resolutions because we know we certainly could make them. We are aware of our failures. We are aware of our shortcomings and our trespasses, but we don't come here, you know, telling you that we will do better, but we come here wrapped in the robes of Christ, found perfect because, Jesus, your work is finished, even as we are fed and nourished at this table, even as we're hungry and thirsty to grow more and more. Uh, Lord, feed us at this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.